Isaiah 51, 1 through 8. Blessings in store for God's people. Listen to me, you that pursue righteousness, you that seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him. But I blessed him and made him many. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And will make her wilderness like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Listen to me, my people, and give heed to me, my nation, for a teaching will go out from me and my justice for a light to all the peoples. I will bring near my deliverance swiftly. My salvation has gone out and my arms will rule the peoples. The coastlands wait for me and for my arm they hope. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and those who live in it will die like gnats. But my salvation will be forever, and my deliverance will never be ended. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people who have my teaching in your hearts, do not fear the reproach of others, and do not be dismayed when they revile you, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my deliverance will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. A reading from the book of Romans, chapter 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. 
If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. It sounds like a terrible thing to say, and in a way it really is, but this period in the immediate aftermath of a clear and obvious tragedy, well, it can be an easy time to define yourself as a Christian. Not that tragedy is a good thing by any means, but when something as over-the-top, ridiculously evil as what happened last week, when an insane cult-like parody of Christian faith operates as the demented engine powering a hate-based insurrection in the United States Capitol, it seems, for a brief and hermeneutically sunny moment, as though the world has become a truly simple and easy-to-understand place. In this moment, in time and space, we are able to find a clear enemy in the sweatshop-produced dime-store knockoff wannabe revolutionaries parading through the halls of government like a Mirror Universe episode of 1960s Star Trek, shirtless lunatic very much included, and in defining that enemy in such broad and obvious terms, it becomes just as easy to sit back happily, firm, and comfortable, secure in the knowledge that if these... If these are the bad folks, then by simple process of elimination, we've got to be good, right? We don't have anything to worry about. Last week, I preached about the need that we have to recognize and repent for our role as Christians in allowing this death cult to grab our imagery, manhandle our mission, and steal our Savior without so much as a questioning glance from the rest of us. This 
twisted community of usurpers to the Christian name sold their righteousness as an overpriced dowry in their marriage to the empire, trumpeting, no pun intended, their love for wealth, strength, and the power of social prominence at so loud a volume that they managed to, at least for a time, drown out the whispering cry of the Savior into the world, telling us stories of salvation for the soul at surrender of the self. They have spent the last 40 years preaching a prosperity gospel of selfishness and hate couched in the culture of rugged individualism, telling everyone that God wants what's best for you personally, so that if you're not personally being served, if you're not personally happy right this very moment, then you're not doing what God really wants you to do. They've spent these last decades calling mansions miracles, bank accounts blessings, and poverty proof of impropriety or impiety. They have spent their time building monuments to their own greed, propping up politicians who were happy to sing them happy songs of the world to come in exchange for consent to devastation and oppression in the world at hand. For a long time, this supposedly evangelical movement was rooted in a heaven-centered belief system, something a colleague of mine recently described as a theology that lived in the clouds. But when the empire came calling, it didn't tempt folks down from the clouds into terrible action with promises of an earth as it is in heaven. Oh, no. It came with promises of numbers. Souls converted, added to the flock through policies and practices that attached American prosperity to tacky theology. Christ's love delivered through the dominion of corporate rule at home and through the barrel of a gun abroad. Souls manufactured through a myopic focus on illegalizing abortion, lest the life that might be turn out to be a Christian soul in potentia. Never you mind that life of a mother which might be lost in the process or forced to endure trauma and torture just so that that all-important number of souls saved counter might tick up by one more. The literal calling card of the growth of this belief system, the evangelism of the evangelical movement, was rooted in this twisted idea that the actions of human beings, human beings, not God, was what would drive growth in the numbers of members of the potentially Christian parade. Numbers. Growth. More and more and more and more. Oh, what a temptation it was. And my, how that temptation spread. It wasn't long before we all started to look at things that way. And it didn't take much for us to find the value in this way of thinking and start compromising our identity to pursue it. After all, I mean, we might be a more mainline, maybe even progressive folk, but come on. Wouldn't it be better if there were a few more butts in the pews come Sunday? You know, come to think of it, when was the last time you saved a soul? 
have you really considered where you're going when you die? Yeah, you know what? To hell with Earth as it is on heaven. I'll just take the genuine article if you don't mind. I know where I'm going. But the word of the Lord tells us, listen to me, you that pursue righteousness, you that seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him. But I blessed him and made him many. When the culture turned our way and we were promised posterity, promised prosperity, offered cultural supremacy, we forgot that we're not the ones who save souls. Look to Abraham, your father. He was but one when I called him, but I, that is the Lord, blessed him and made him many. It wasn't Abraham who made a nation of himself. It was God who did that work. But it wasn't enough for us to just trust in the Lord. It wasn't enough for us to be true to our faith and true to the author and finisher thereof. No, we had to make those numbers ourselves, lest the blessed exchequer find us wanting in the end. So instead of meeting this missional madness with a firm yet polite rejection, secure in the confidence that God whispers a message of mercy and love in the hearts of all God's creatures. We instead strapped up our sword and shield for a brand spanking new crusade, ready to get out there and win souls for Jesus Christ. And th this wasn't just in the heart of the evangelical cult, mind you, not solely the province of the people who pulled their name from this practice, the idea spread to us all. I, I grew up in one of the most Protestant churches to ever protest Protestantly. I grew up Protestant in a city that was so Protestant, you couldn't throw a stone without knocking over two full Lutheran congregations and half the Christian Reformed Church leadership. And even still, everything about our experience as Christian youth was positively driven on this mildly ironic but utterly deaf and blind idea of us saving souls for Christ. Mission trips to preach prosperity to brown bodies, telling the good news of if you just work a little bit harder on guest visits to congregations full of folk who had worked harder in a day than any one of us had in our entire lives. Religious tracts prepped and delivered with a bow on top to starving African children, children who I'm sure were able to fill their stomachs with the good news, TM, that Jesus loved them even as their insides gnawed at them. I mean, there was even a thrift store in the town where I went to college whose name was the totality of their entire mission statement. The name of their store was, and I swear to you I am not making this up, Bibles for Mexico. Let me repeat that in case you don't fully follow how crazy this is. Their entire thing was that they were providing Bibles, the central text of the Christian faith, to Mexico 
a nation which identified as 82% Catholic in a recent poll on religious affiliation. Do you see the insanity yet? But we all just kind of went with it. Mission trips were fun, so us kids never gave them much thought. We just patted ourselves on the back, told ourselves that we had done a good thing, and thought about all those new souls we had just saved for Jesus. We were a people who would spend thousands upon thousands of dollars to send a team of hormonal teenagers halfway around the world to build a half dozen ramshackle huts for foreigners in the strange and distant land of Puerto Rico. All while the students who couldn't afford to go in the first place skipped meals and sat under leaky roofs just wondering where all their friends had gone. It just sounded so much better. So much more American to have a faith rooted in productivity, to have the metric of our faith be actual, measurable numbers. It, it, was, it was just so much easier to be able to count our way to Christianity. It was, it was just easier. It was easier because it required nothing of us but a little cheap effort. It was easier because it allowed us to redirect the work of conversion onto other bodies, brown bodies, foreign bodies, LGBTQ bodies, any bodies other than our own. It was easier because it meant we wouldn't have to question, wouldn't have to explore, wouldn't have to wrestle with the meaning of God's word here today in our own lives because we were so busy minding absolutely everybody else's business that we completely neglected our own. It was easier because if we spent all our time saving other people's souls, we would never have to wonder if ours had ever been saved in the first place. I can think of half a dozen Sunday school classes I had to sit through as a youth, preparing me with all the arguments and apologetics necessary to convert that unbeliever that I would sometimes stumble across in math class, apparently. But I can't remember once having a real discussion on what the marks of a true Christian actually are. But I'll give you one guess as to which one of those two things actually shows up in the Bible, eh? But there was power in our whiteness, power in our Americanness, power in the supremacy that we all told ourselves we had as Christians. By placing ourselves as the saviors of souls in the forefront of a Christianity embraced by the greatest period, nation, period, ever, period, we felt the strength needed to push God out from the center of our own spiritual world where God surely dwelt in the Holy of Holies out into all the dark corners of the world where God's good news had yet to reach. As if this new imperial power put places on earth within our reach that were somehow miraculously beyond God's reach? I mean, can you imagine the sheer hubris that takes to think so highly of ourselves that we presume that we, as people or as individuals, are able to do something which God's own self cannot do. <laughs> this was the point, I think, 
where we all should have sat the heck back down, pulled up a cup of tea, and read Romans 12 again. What a world we might have today if sometime in the mid-90s maybe, we had all stopped for one second and questioned if there was anything wrong about the fact that our practice of faith lined up so perfectly, so easily with the cruelty of racism, the greed of capitalism, the terror of militarism, and the unself-conscious fury and maddeningly grand scale of religiously tinted nationalism. In our small community here, we've committed to having a brief time of conversation every week on what it means to become a people who are willing to call ourselves Christian in a truly useful way in the world and to try to hold accountable those who both use the term and our very identity in Christ in that vapid, spiritualized, self-centered way that C.S. Lewis so aptly described as useless. In our conversation this week, we made the distinction between one's personal faith, which is something that no one can really question or police, and the way that one lives out one's faith. This duality of faith is something all of us who did profession of faith in a Protestant church are reasonably familiar with. In a Protestant church, when you come before the whole church to declare your faith, fully realized and developed either through a new members class or the confirmation class for Christian youth, when you come, you're asked to answer two sets of questions. The first is, well, exactly what you'd expect. Questions about your faith. Do you believe in Jesus, the Bible, etc., etc.? Those ephemeral questions of what you personally believe. And these things, don't get me wrong, are very important. That's why they're asked, and it's why they're asked first. But it's the second set of questions that I find the most interesting and perhaps the most relevant to what we're all wrestling with now. After the questions you're asked about your personal faith, you're asked a second set of questions about whether you accept the beliefs and practices of the church as a community, and perhaps even more importantly, if you consent to be held accountable by that community in practicing your beliefs actively in the world. And here it is that we find that dreaded, most dangerous word, accountability. It's a scary thought. But what would it be like to hold ourselves accountable for our practice of faith? What would it be like to hold others accountable for theirs? How can we be accountable to each other in walking the Christian path set before us? Now, obviously, this isn't a question I'm going to be answering anytime soon. Definitely not with a few hours of research and a witty pop culture reference. But I think it's worth considering for us, as we go out into this next week, what it might mean to be accountable to each other and to hold others who purport to share our beliefs accountable to those beliefs as well. For now, I think we can find some sense of what this might look like in verse 3. I say to everyone among you 
not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The accountability we submit to, the accountability to which we will eventually need to hold others in our faith to as well, is rooted in a servant mindset and the desire to build among us in our own communities a world in which we do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all and, so far as it depends on each one of us, to live peaceably with all. This kind of accountability, it's not about swinging at windmills and bringing down giants. It's about embracing the wayward members of our own communities with love, even when they perpetuate evil. It's about living into the smallness of our own unique worlds, appreciating the way in which each one of us, even those who have joined this terrible death cult of merciless hatred, is still made in the image of God. And from that place of relational love and appreciation, we are called to reproach fearlessly, but with unending mercy, always careful to avoid letting our reproach turn into vengeance. The temptation of empire is that it suggests to us a broader stage than that to which God calls us. It whispers to us the promise of reproaching all the wayward at once to act as agents of God's vengeance, seizing for ourselves something which we know, in our heart of hearts, is solely the Lord's. The temptation of empire is that it offers us the ability to save all the lives, save all the souls, even save the world. It gives us the opportunity to think big, think dramatic, and to see ourselves as heroes, to see ourselves as saviors. But I got to tell you, we already have one of those, and we don't need another. The Christian religion isn't a religion of heroes. It isn't a religion of great and mighty world-saving crusaders riding in on a white horse, matching, of course, to its rider in all respects, ready to be greeted as liberators, draped with laurels and praised for who and what we are. No. The Christian religion is a community of servants, as diverse in function and ability as they are diverse in identity. What unites us isn't a belief in saving souls, doing a particular good work, fighting the good fight, persevering defiantly in the face of persecution, or even just a preternatural ability to sing Battle Hymn to the Republic really, really loud. What unites us is a desire to be genuine in our love for everyone without condition, to turn our hate against the evils of injustice and oppression in the world, and in all things to serve the Lord. What unites us is our identity as simple folk, making our way in the world in love, mercy, and peace. The temptations of empire, the offer to be big damn heroes, who needs it? Let the bonds of love in our own communities, in our own families, in our own lives, 
be the first step in building that relational accountability and in showing our mercy undeserved, in showing reproach delivered firmly and with kindness, may we too leave ourselves accountable to each other in the same way, always keeping our hearts open and willing to learn and grow together. Let us be like children, ever ready to love, to learn, to grow, and to change. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I want to thank you once again for joining us for this Sunday's message. Uh, If you liked it, feel free to share it around. It's all here for anyone to do with as you will. Uh, If you have any prayer requests, uh, please let me know. We do now our regular prayer broadcast on Wednesdays. Uh, So if you have something that you need prayed over, feel free to reach out to me. My email is in the description. Uh, We are also continuing our series of conversations on what it means to form a Christian identity going into this new and terrifying world. These gatherings are being held uh, on our Discord server at 10.30 p.m. Japan time on Saturday, which is 8.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, in the U.S. Saturday mornings. If this is something you've got some time for, we would love for you to join us, and I hope you'll make time for that. Uh, In the meantime, please know as you go out into the world that whatever you may face, our prayers are with you, our thoughts are with you, our love is with you, and the love of God and the peace and fellowship that comes with it are going to be with you too. Have a great week.